Welcome to the Consilience Podcast. My name is Shannon Beer and I talk to experts who can help us to overcome our insecurities and support our physical and mental health so that we can get the most out of our lives. Today I am joined by Ella, who is a sport and exercise psychologist in training, who is passionate about supporting people to change their health and fitness behaviours. She has a bachelor's in psychology, a master's in sports psychology, and an ongoing doctorate in sport and exercise psychology. And with that, Ella is on a mission to support individuals through their psychological barriers to health and fitness behaviours. Now, Ella doesn't only work with individuals, she also works with coaches and fitness professionals and I thought Ella would be a great guest to have on the podcast today to talk about what makes a good coach you know what really is the role of a coach here who is responsible for the change when it comes to getting results and how do we create a conducive dynamic in terms of the coach client relationship to facilitate those results So we're going to talk about some common coaching mistakes and then some things that we can do to help address those barriers that we may have. So I thought I would start off by asking you, Ella, why do you do the work that you do? (laughs) That's a great question. Thank you for the introduction. It's so odd being on the receiving end of that, but that is really cool. Thank you. Um, Why? Okay, so I think... I started off, I did my undergrad in psychology and then I went and did um, a course in nutrition, the ISSN diploma. And I thought, oh, this is brilliant. Now I can really help people, you know, optimization and and glycogen, all this kind of stuff. Um, Started working with people and I was realizing like, you don't even get onto that optimization because we need to um, nail the basics first. And the problem with that is that people find it difficult to adhere to even the basics. So for me, I quickly realized that it was far less about nutrition and far less about knowledge and education and it was far more about the actual behavior change Um, and for me I've always been fascinated with this question of why do people change or what makes people change why is it that some people can just have a really great and relationship with exercise and movement and it seems like no effort for them they love it and other people find it extremely difficult that to me feels like a very complicated but interesting question and I am on the path to trying to figure that out I think a lot of people who've been working in this industry for long enough have come to similar conclusions that, you know what, it really isn't that much to do with nutrition, or at least the intricacies of nutrition knowledge really do not apply in the majority of coaching circumstances, and that the lack of awareness about behavior change and, you know, all of the psychology behind that and our relationship with food and ourselves and exercise is really what's going to make the biggest difference. So I think you're doing a great job by bridging that gap and bringing the psychology to the nutrition and fitness coaching realm which you know really is in sore need of it so I thought we could discuss in your opinion okay what makes a good coach given that our industry is pretty you know not well regulated what actually makes a good coach (laughs) what is our role here yeah, that's a great question. Because I think what a lot of people will think will make a good coach is is knowing that you know about nutrition, you know about training, you know how to communicate it. That seems like what people think would make a good coach. Um, I think there's a lot of lot to it. Obviously, you have to have some expertise or some knowledge in the area that you're coaching in. But more importantly, 
are you able to form good relationships, good working relationships with the clients that you're working with? Are you able to communicate in a way that's effective? Are you able to listen? Are you able to identify the person's um, challenges? Do you understand about the change process? Those to me are kind of the most important factors of what make a good coach. Are you able to set aside your own barriers and your own um, concerns in support of the client, which is really, really difficult? I guess in terms of what's the role of the coach it depends but I think mostly we're a facilitator mostly we are a guide our job is to almost not act like the expert to to solve the client's problems it's more a case of can we be on that journey with the client so they can identify their own problems their own challenges and when they when they come against something can we support them through that process and that to me is the role of a coach as opposed to um come on you can do it um and almost taking over the process for them I guess if I was to think of an analogy, a really good one is like a car. The role of a coach isn't to be in the driving seat all the time. And it's, you know, you're driving the mission, you're driving the goal, you're telling the client what to do, where to go and driving it. And they're just in the passenger seat, giving some sort of directions. Optimally, we would want the clients to be in the driving seat and we're in the passenger seat, almost like letting them be on their own journey, but we're just providing a little bit of direction as and when needed. I do love a good analogy. I've got one too, if you'd like to hear it. <laughs> yeah, please do. I like the analogy of a gardener in that, you know, thinking of your clients as the plants, you can't force a plant to grow. All you can do is clear away the weeds and create the ideal conditions that allow the plant to flourish. So like you say, it's about the support and the guidance, which doesn't necessarily mean being a cheerleader all of the time. That's not coaching either, but it definitely doesn't mean telling clients what to do and expecting them to be able to follow through with that with no issues. You mentioned that Part of what makes a good coach is being aware of your own barriers. What does that mean? So we've got to appreciate that if we are a coach in the fitness space, we probably have a very different relationship to nutrition and exercise than most people, and particularly most people that we're going to be working with. So for us, it might be very normal that we train every day. We may think that if we miss training two or three times a week, that that's actually us not doing such a good job. Now, the issue with that is that if we can't park that to one side, when we have a client come to us and maybe we, we ask them to do three sessions a week, if they then can't do those three sessions and we haven't explored our own biases, we might start to get frustrated with the client. You know, well, if I manage to go six times a week, how come you can't go three times? That's just an excuse. It seems like you don't really want it. Um, and that's because we're coming from our frame of reference. So it's really important that we kind of understand what our frame of reference is first so how do I see exercise how do I see nutrition what's my relationship to those things what do they mean to me once we understand that it's almost being able to put that to one side and step into the client's frame of reference so for them going three times a week may seem like climbing an enormous mountain whereas for us it might seem like something very different but if we're going to help that person we need to come from where they're at completely agree I think that it is really important to understand a little bit more about your own relationship to nutrition and exercise because I find that a lot of coaches get into this industry through their own personal enjoyment of fitness or they've gone on their own kind of health and fitness journey and have seen the results for themselves and then that experience then colors their 
guidance when it comes to coaching because it's from their perspective only and whilst we can't divorce ourselves from our own experience our biases our perceptions we can become a bit more aware of how that may carry over into our coaching and as you say learn to set that aside and step into the client's own frame of reference so when it comes to actually doing that how can we become more aware what are we sort of looking for when it comes to understanding our relationship to nutrition and fitness and exercise yeah so for me the easiest place to start is to just start paying really close attention to your own experience so if you're working with a client and you are starting to get really frustrated or um, impatient that is a really good signifier uh, or an indicator that there is something there for you to explore so it would follow on nicely okay I'm getting really irritated by this client now um, what's going on for me here what is this rubbing up against inside me that's making me feel irritated and so for me that's a really good place to start I think that's a great thing to look out for and I find that even when it comes to clients like the the way that we portray ourselves and our own journeys and all the things to do with that in the industry can also affect how a client perceives their own experience. So I work with a number of people who have the belief that, oh, this should be easy for me. You know, everyone else can do it. Why can't I? And I think we have to be very careful when it comes to the way that we communicate with other people to help normalize the struggle because that's something that probably isn't spoken to enough. I think the common practice is to become frustrated at a lack of progress because of course you care, you want your clients to do well and you also want to feel good at your job. I think that's something that doesn't get acknowledged. It's like, yeah, you have these you know, well wishes for your client, but it's also about you too, because nobody feels wants to feel like they're a crappy coach. And I think their own frustrations are born out of those two things. It may be a bit of doubt about your own coaching ability, which is healthy enough. You know, we're we're never gonna be fully developed as coaches. So having that awareness there that there may be something to work on is really important. But making sure that that's acknowledged and not turned onto the client so maybe this can bring us on to the question of who is responsible for change and what is the coach's role in client change yeah and as you were talking I was thinking well yes it's, it might be because we feel a little bit insecure in our ability to help someone but oftentimes if we are getting um, really frustrated or experiencing um, more extreme emotions it's likely because we are taking too much responsibility for our clients change it's likely that we believe that we are wholly responsible so then when the client isn't making progress we believe it's completely our fault consciously or subconsciously um, and then what that's doing is it's making us feel insecure which is then leading to the frustration which we might then push back onto the client so in terms of who's responsible for change I would actually encourage the listeners to start off by drawing a scale and on one side saying I am responsible and on the other end of the scale saying the client is responsible um, and a line in the middle and just put a cross where you think you sit on that line because it's a it's a really useful and interesting practice we do it uh, as sports psychologists as well Um, and the idea is is that you cannot be fully responsible for the client's change because at least it's a collaborative process so you have to understand what's yours 
and what's the client. And this can go all the way back to the expectations that you set at the start. And so then rather than getting frustrated when a client isn't making progress, you can always check back in with yourself and make sure that you're doing the things that you expect of yourself. And if you are, then it might be that it's on the client side. Yeah, that's a brilliant answer. I think that's really important because it can go one of both ways, right? Where we feel like we've done our job as long as we've told our clients what to do, or we feel wholly responsible and down on ourselves when a client is struggling. So figuring out where on that scale you think you lie and then differentiating between what the client is responsible for and what you are responsible for can ensure that you feel confident that you are doing your job or that you're able to spot potentially some of your weaknesses and that those frustrations don't get pushed onto the client whether that's coming from a place of wanting to help you know or more concern about your own experience absolutely and I think that we could almost view this as like a bell curve of um, responsibility if you take too little responsibility we can get into the zone of blaming like um, the client is not committed enough they are not motivated they just don't have it in them to change, right? So that might be us not taking enough responsibility or we're not quite sure what to do. So we may blame the client. But at the opposite end of the bell curve, there is such thing as taking too much responsibility. And the problem with this, there's a lot of problems, but firstly, it can lead to coach burnout. And it means that you may not get as much satisfaction out of the job as possible because if, if the clients don't change and you believe it's completely on you, that's quite stress inducing because of course you care um, you want to run a good business. You want to be a good coach, but also the issue with that is that the more responsibility that we take for clients change, the less it, the less responsibility they can take for themselves. And ultimately when it comes to long-term change, the client has to take the responsibility so that they can do this when they stop working with you. Yeah, that's the thing that we all talk about sort of sustainable results and long term change, but potentially fail to make that connection between what that means for us in terms of how much responsibility we take for a client. So when we do want to help, it can be very easy, like you say, to be overly involved and that can lead to burnout, less job satisfaction, stress, all of the rest of it. How can we differentiate then between what we are responsible for and how we can contribute versus when we need to let a client learn for themselves at the same time? Great question. There's probably not a um, definitive boundary, but you mentioned it earlier. It might have been before we jumped on, but it's the idea of like, maybe we can look at it as we can create the conditions for change, but we're not responsible to actually make the change happen. It's a very subtle difference, but our responsibility is to make sure that the coaching dynamic and our relationship with the client is conducive to change. And there are particular things that make something conducive to change, which we can get into, but that's our responsibility. It, we also have a responsibility in doing what we said we would when the client signed up. So we have to match what we said that we were going to do. And um, we have to provide the support. We have to provide some certain knowledge. But in terms of doing the actual actions, the client has to do the actions. Now, if they don't do the actions, that is also okay. It's, we have to accept that as coaches, it's okay. And then maybe it's our role to think, are we really making this environment conducive? Are there any things that I can do to support the clients through their barriers or to understand their own barriers? But for us, we can't force somebody to, to do something. 
Yeah, and I think that's potentially where some of that frustration comes from as well, is a lack of acceptance that there are some things that people may not be ready for. There are some things that people do not even want for themselves. And it's something that we actually want for them. So being able to recognize when that's happening. And then, as you say, taking that step back and just focusing on, am I creating the ideal conditions for change? So what might that look like? Yeah, so we can take this really simply. There are three basic psychological needs. Um, That's the sense of autonomy. So we need to feel like we're in control of our lives. It's competence. We need to feel like we're good at what we're doing. And the final one is relatedness. So these are three psychological needs. And according to a lot of research is that if we kind of support these needs, people will be intrinsically motivated and they will, um, we have an inherent tendency to actualize, which means to, to, to grow, to move towards what's good and what we really want. So the idea is that if we meet these needs, we'll be able to, to spontaneously move towards the things that are important to us. And so if we aren't feeling intrinsically motivated and, and we aren't moving towards growth, it's likely that one of these needs or several are being thwarted. So what this looks like in our coaching is that through our communication, for example, through our coaching program, through the process are we undermining a person's autonomy, competence, and relatedness? So when we're speaking to them, do they have choice? Do they have options? Are we judging them? Um, Are we giving them goals that are unrealistic so that when they don't achieve them, it, it reinforces that idea that they aren't competent? Have we not listened correctly? And are we not really being empathetic that they don't feel as though they have that relatedness or connectedness towards us. So I guess I'll leave it there and we can explore whatever direction you you want to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I've found through mentoring coaches is that they often think they're doing these things and then it turns out that they're actually not. (laughs) And it's really, really hard because the word I missed out, which is extremely important, is perceived. So these psychological needs, it's a person's perceived autonomy, perceived competence and perceived relatedness. So it doesn't matter if we think that we are giving them so much autonomy. If the client doesn't feel like that, then it doesn't matter. And so (laughs) it really comes back to the relationship. And are you asking them, you know, what's this like for you? Is this working for you? Is there a way that we can um, kind of change this to make it to make it easier for you it's it's not being scared to ask for that feedback and not being scared to truly see it as a collaborative process rather than seeing it as something where we are the coach we need to have all the answers and therefore we can't let the client know that we we might want their support with this yeah absolutely i i think that that's something that we overlook is the importance of asking for feedback because it's a service that's designed for the individual therefore to get the most out of the service they should probably have a say in what that looks like and i think a common concern that coaches may have when it comes to doing this is that well i'm the expert like they're coming to me to be told what to do therefore if i start asking them what they want that's going to look like I don't know what I'm doing how would you respond to that 100% um, but that comes down to the coach's confidence in their own abilities there's a lot of research in this in the psychological domain which is kind of like 
as we first start at coaches, we start in sort of the lay helper stage, which is that this was my past experience. This worked for me. So now I'm going to help people based on my own experience, which, you know, it's your own experience is very valid and it might be helpful, but you'll notice that you really quickly run into barriers because not everybody's like you. And then you don't know what to do when clients aren't quite like you. And this is where some resistance or barriers occur. Then the next stage, you sort of you sort of just go through the, the stages, I guess, of development. But ultimately, we get to a place where it's not even about our personal experience. It's about, you know, we can set aside this idea of we're supposed to be the expert. And instead, we really start listening to the client, which is like, what are their unique barriers? What are they actually saying? What do they actually need? And we are able to adjust our approach to truly support that person in front of us. I think it's just a, a radically different way of approaching coaching, which you know, like you said, it it is difficult because we might feel insecure or we may feel like, oh no, but they're paying us. We don't want it to seem like we don't know what we're doing. But the ultimate expertise or the ultimate knowing what you're doing is being so confident that you can almost not have a standardized approach because you know that you can call upon your skills with whatever clients in front of you yeah exactly exactly and I think that once you understand a little bit more about these conditions of change basic psychological needs like we've discussed then that gives you the confidence to ask these questions because you know that it's a necessary part of the process and that it's actually going to lead to more successful outcomes and then once you make that a habit and you see that for yourself and you see the impact that it has on a client's progress then you're going to be much more confident in continuing to do that and ask these questions in the future and I think setting up those expectations from the beginning is one way in which we can do that so potentially explaining to a client you know what this is a collaboration we're working together here your input is important to me there are many ways that we can reach your goals we're going to have most success with the ones that you prefer all of those sorts of statements and letting them know that it's okay to ask questions yes that it's okay to want to change the approach and pivot absolutely yeah that is so important I think sometimes people get worried that oh no but if we let the client have a say um well this is the question that I get asked it's kind of what do you do when um that is in direct opposition to the client's goals. So it's almost like um, coaches might feel nervous to give up some of the control because they're worried that the client won't get to the goals fast enough and that will you know, lead to the client not being satisfied. But I guess it makes me kind of ask the question, well, whose goal is this? Is it is it the coach's goal or is it the client's goal? Um, and we've got to be able to appreciate that We've got to follow the client and we can't hold the goal for them. It's not our responsibility to to kind of achieve that goal for them. We have to appreciate that it, it it's their goal, if that makes sense. Yeah, and also if that happens, you know, there are ways to address your concerns as well. Oh, a client wants to do something that you think is not conducive to achieving the result. Maybe they don't understand how um, the impact of that or so on, or they're not really clear on their priorities, whatever it is. Like you can just raise those concerns. Oh, I, you know, we mentioned that we want to work towards this goal and I have some concerns about the approach that I would like to raise with you. What do you think about that? And then the client's like, yeah, okay, tell me more. And then you explain how, well, you know, if we do this thing, it might lead to this result or there's this thing that we haven't considered. What do you think? And then they've got that additional information to feed back into the decision-making process. And they may say, oh, thanks a lot. Like I hadn't actually considered that. 
that makes sense let's go for this or they may say okay well I've taken that on board but I still want to do whatever I want to do and then you go with that so there are ways to raise your concerns and offer up information but at the end of the day as you said it's up to the client what they do with that exactly and you've raised some some really really cool points in there which is you did a bit about you know asking permission and how we go about giving advice um but the important part of that example you gave is that ultimately you go with what the client wants I think sometimes as coaches we feel compelled to um to do what's right like as in we want to correct the client so the client might say something can we have this impulse to correct what they've said but really it's not about being right it's about what works um, and we have to think of what we're really trying to achieve here so exactly kind of like what you said if your client suggests they get a bit frustrated they don't seem to be making any progress and they say no I want to try intermittent fasting I did that before and I just feel like I want to go back to it now you might know that that's not necessarily going to work for them they've tried it in the past you're trying to move away from these sort of all or nothing mindsets you're trying to navigate that gray area with your client a bit more but you don't say to your client no that's a terrible idea you're not going to be able to do intermittent fasting don't you remember the last time (laughs) you didn't do it um what you might do is you might say what's going on for you right now that has that's led to this suggestion of intermittent fasting and then they might start speaking to you about their frustration and they really want to change and they feel helpless and then you can work in that space you can hold that space for them and you can you know help explore that okay so when you start feeling frustrated you you look towards taking an, an approach that's a little bit more extreme because you're kind of really really wanting to succeed and you work in that space with that person and if they decide they want to do it, then you say, okay, great. Well, let's let's see how it goes. How about we see how that goes and then we can kind of go from there. And now the great thing about that is that you haven't, um, you haven't broken the relationship that you have with the client. And if it doesn't come, if it doesn't work, they know they can just come back to you and say, actually, that hasn't worked. Can we maybe try what you, what you were thinking? So it's all about making sure we keep that rapport. We We have to let clients make mistakes. Sometimes we don't want to allow clients to make mistakes, but we have to let them. That's part of the growing process and always reminding ourselves that, you know, progress isn't linear. Absolutely. And uh, we all nod our heads and say that, yeah, progress isn't linear. Like we get that on an intellectual level, but when it comes to putting that into practice, we don't realize that that actually involves us as you say being comfortable with letting clients make mistakes and I think that can be difficult if you don't understand the purpose of that and if you don't understand the stages of change in the sense that actually sometimes people just need that heightened awareness as to why they feel obliged to do certain things or why they're leaning more towards one approach like you say well if a client has had some kind of success with something that's a little bit more rigid in the past it's very likely that they may be drawn to that approach but it could be for a lack of other options so again exploring what that means to a client and why they feel like going back to something they've already tried that can be really helpful and then sometimes yeah you do need to just sit alongside them as they go through that process again and realize for themselves that it hasn't worked like simply telling someone that's not going to work isn't going to be helpful and in fact they'll probably react to that and you'll just reinforce their own decision about wanting to do what they want to do and this really does relate back to that autonomy aspect absolutely Um, and it's almost like that experiential learning You, you can tell somebody something 
300 times but once they experience it for themselves that is an enormously valuable learning experience so we don't almost want to rob clients of that chance to really learn it experientially because that's you know that's going to stick with them longer and that's the the whole point of making this change you know a long-term thing is actually giving clients the confidence to go out and try things and learn if it hasn't worked out in the way that they would like and then you can have those conversations you know when they've accepted that okay this is clearly not working for me I know that I can go to my coach and discuss this with them because I feel comfortable enough to admit that you know whereas if a client feels like they've done something wrong they're probably not going to want to raise that and they may end up with sticking with something even when they're aware that it's not really working and try and force themselves to make it work so this is why that relationship and that dynamic is also really crucial that's it that's it Exactly. This brings us right back to that idea of, you know, if we um, adopt this position that we are the expert or the teacher or whatever it is, when we get into these situations, the client is going to perceive that as you are telling them off. Like it's almost as if like you're a parent or you're a teacher, you're somebody who is judging them and telling them off and you know you shouldn't have done that and all this kind of stuff. Whereas going into that collaborative zone it does open up that path for that communication because you feel like you're in an equal playing field and that is so important for change Um, and it's really important when clients come up against these barriers as well so absolutely it comes back down to the approach that you take um, the relationship that you build and a really key factor that we haven't really touched on yet is the non-judgmental approach and again it's something that we hear all the time right we know that we shouldn't be non-judgmental but what does that truly mean and look like in practice and it means that when a client does something that you disagree with you are able to still accept and place no judgment on that person Um, and it's a really really hard skill but it's a really important skill how might we develop that skill then how can we become aware of when we may be judging someone without even really realizing that we're doing so such a hard question, such an important question. Um, for me, the answer always comes back to ourselves. You know, the relationship with ourself is the foundation for our relationship with other people. So if you are extremely judgmental of yourself, I believe that you're going to be less able to provide a non-judgmental space for somebody else. Um, so what we can do is we can start by playing, paying really close attention to how we treat ourselves. Do we fully accept ourselves are we able to offer ourselves self-compassion? Are we non-judgmental? Um, and kind of kind of going from there. Yeah, I agree that our relationship with ourselves really does form the foundation of the relationship that we have with other people. And that once we've been able to develop ourselves in this way, we're then in a position to, or a more likely position to be able to help clients with these processes too. Now, I wonder if a client says something that, you can clearly see is an example of them judging themselves, such as I have clients who call themselves lazy. Well, lazy is a judgmental word because it has negative connotations. Whereas if we were to describe the situation, for example, I skipped a workout, that's a fact, that's not a judgment. There's a difference there. So do you think that the coach has a part to play in helping a client become less judgmental by actually in a roundabout way like calling them out on it or if we let it slide are we actually adding to that judgment because it never goes uncorrected 
I think that we do have a position as coaches, but we've got to be careful to make sure that we understand how to do that. Um, I would lean upon my psychology to support with this process. So for example, what that might look like is calling them out. Yeah, but, but you do it in a particular way. So you might say, I wonder what's going on for you there. You kind of insinuating that you're, you're lazy. And because I feel confident holding a therapeutic space because I've, you know, had that background. So if a coach feels comfortable and they have experience doing that, then absolutely it's appropriate. And it's really, really important. Um, ways that you might do it, that it's less about holding that therapeutic space might be kind of going down a more CBT route or sim- more simply, what I would probably say to a client is, you know, if that that seems like that's quite a critical voice you've got going on in your head. Um, we could kind of see that as like a soundtrack rather than listening to the content of those thoughts, almost seeing it as that, oh, that's that self-critic soundtrack and understanding that, yes, we might have a self-critic soundtrack and that's really normal, but we also have other soundtracks that seem to be turned down really low at the moment. You know, could we imagine turning up the dial on other voices and letting them in and maybe the one with self-compassion? What might that sound like? Um, you know, or maybe I would do some work and ask whose voice is that? Um, or imagining the, the voice as a thing in the room and, you know, all these different tools we can use even more simply. What would you do, say to a friend in that position? What would you say to the young, the young you? All these kind of things work as tools to help our clients understand how powerful um, being critical actually is. And it's, it's not just a case of, oh, yeah, you're just saying some, some bad things and beating yourself up actually it's something that does have an impact on your behavior moving forward yeah and that's the crucial thing and I think could probably give a coach a bit of direction as to you know whether or not to address it would be do I think that this critical self-talk is contributing to unhelpful behaviors in relation to the goal that the client expressed that they want to work on so if when a client calls themselves lazy that leads to negative affect which is regulated by overeating then it's probably worth addressing something like that whereas if a client mentions that they're lazy in an offhand kind of way and there's no behavioral change in an unhelpful way then it's probably not important or as important to address and if we do decide that it is worth addressing then exactly as you said there are ways to go about that that can be helpful and I really love the idea which I think is kind of common across multiple uh, therapeutic approaches of differentiating certain parts of yourself so understanding that you have a critical part but you've also got a compassionate part and those different parts of you may view the situation in different ways and that we don't necessarily have to seek to eliminate the criticism because that's probably unlikely and it's unnecessary but if we can understand why that criticism occurs or where it comes from we can also understand then what it's trying to achieve so usually in this example if someone's calling themselves lazy it signals that they really care about their goal to be fitter healthier whatever that means and that working out is something that's important that they follow through with so that's okay to understand that the motivation behind the criticism is to push them towards their goal but the question then becomes did that actually help so when you can understand where it's coming from you can then see how that's impacting your behaviors and then wonder whether okay do i need to do something different here 
Yes. Yeah. That is, that is so fantastic. Absolutely. Um, and that's the really important question. Is it helpful? <laughs> that's a really good guiding question. And I suppose a point to add here is that it is completely normal for us to experience ambivalence or what we mean by that is to have different parts of ourselves feeling different things towards the same thing. So we can feel both critical and proud of ourselves. It seems like it can't exist, but it absolutely does exist. We are as humans paradoxes. And the more that we can become comfortable with that and make space for the entirety of our experience, the easier it's going to feel for us to to make change and to and to move forward in the direction that's important. And what this isn't is it's not just positive thinking. Mm. <laughs> because sometimes if us as coaches we don't understand that kind of process inside with our thoughts, we might just say, you know, just just reframe it and think positively. But then what ends up happening is that you have more voices in your head that end up shouting at each other. So you have this critical voice and then you're trying to tell yourself, you know, no, like I, I can do this. But then all that happens is you're using more energy. Your, your mind is busier and you're spending more time in your head with your thoughts. Whereas really what we want to be doing is we want to be moving towards what's important to us and taking as an act approach would call it committed action I know you know like the act approach but it's this idea of rather than engaging in a in a mental tussle between different thoughts it's kind of like well can we let go of that fight altogether and just remember what's important and almost do that action with those feelings with us at the same time and realizing that we can still progress whilst feeling a bit critical whilst feeling pride all these different things can exist whilst we still do the things we want to do Absolutely. I do like some of the metaphors that they use in acts, like the Chinese finger trap. I'm like, oh, yep, I'm definitely, you know, battling with myself here and not achieving anything. And I think that can be a very useful way of illustrating human behavior. And as you say, making room for conflicting emotions or seemingly conflicting emotions, different parts of yourselves and allowing them to occur, but also then thinking about what would be the most helpful thing for me to do in this situation because it is about the action it's the behavior that's the crucial part and you can feel crappy and still take committed action towards a goal and that's fine so that's where sort of the acceptance comes in but then also I would add and this is probably one of the limitations of act is that there are also ways to change how you feel if you don't think that it's helpful so I think a combined approach is probably something that hopefully the industry catches onto a little bit more as we do see like the increase in uptake of further education alongside the the therapeutic sort of interventions that would be really helpful so with what we've discussed so far we've sort of talked about the coach's role in client change on that line of topic how might we be as coaches actually contributing to a client's resistance I love this question because oftentimes if a client isn't doing something, you know, then they're not adhering. Um, they, they say they're going to do something, but they don't do it. Often we can almost go into blame mode. You know, they're not really that committed. They don't really seem to want it too much. They're, you know, creating excuses. But what I love to educate coaches on is this idea that, you know, there are, so psychology occurs in a context. So it's not that motivation, for example, just lives within the client. Actually, it lives between the environment that you create for your client. It lives within the dynamic between you and the client. 
and it lives a little bit in the client as well. And so by understanding that, that almost all psychological barriers or constructs exist in a context that's dynamic in nature, it helps us to understand that we probably have a role to play in a lot of it. Not, we don't have a complete role, just like the client doesn't have a complete role, but it's definitely this kind of system approach, if you like. So let me take motivation for as an example. We might think, okay, our client just isn't motivated, but let's go back to ourself and think, well, okay, there are a lot of things that we may do as a coach that can actually suppress or thwart a person's motivation. And if we can look at it through the lens again of the three basic psychological needs, but if we... Um, are kind of undermining their their competence if we aren't taking into consideration what what they want to do because we're prescribing them a training program or we're prescribing them a nutrition program then that's why they're not motivated um if they're not adhering it's not because they're lazy it's probably because they don't want to do what we're asking them to do or maybe they don't feel capable of doing it so there are loads of things as a coach to realize that we can influence we have a lot more influence than we think we do so even in terms of you know, our empathy that we can offer a client. If a client is telling us a reason they can't do something and we view that as an excuse, we aren't able to truly be empathetic of what's going on, which is going to impact the relationship with the client, which is then going to have an impact on the behaviors they then do. Um, there's a lot of research that suggests that people are more willing to do difficult things when they feel like they are able to do them and when they have the support. So if a person isn't doing something, Maybe we can provide them with more support or maybe we can help them feel able by breaking it down into simpler um, tasks. But those are some ideas of, of how we can influence that process. Yeah, and I think that's actually really exciting to, to learn about as a coach, because, of course, we do have this motivation and this drive to want to be you know a really top level coach to really help a large number of people in meaningful ways. And I think that's where we've been pushed towards learning even more about training and even more about nutrition but when we understand that there's a lot more to it and that actually our role may not just be an educator but a guide and source of support we're then able to redirect our learning and our development to be able to change the way that we approach coaching which is likely to lead to some of these outcomes that we're hoping for so on that note what are some common coaching mistakes that we may be making yeah great question so i guess um in terms of like the feedback that we offer clients there's a few mistakes that we might make here um the first mistake is that we might only be addressing the good stuff that a client does so which is brilliant we want to be able to address that but sometimes we might ignore the bad because we might get worried that if we touch the bad it's going to somehow make them feel less motivated which might be okay one week but if we're continuously ignoring the stuff they don't do that might be a mistake but the opposite is also true if we're offering too much praise that also becomes a problem i mean i won't go into the detail of motivation theory because it's hard to explain as well via a podcast but motivation exists on a continuum and it goes from you know rather than seeing it as intrinsic and extrinsic we think about it in terms of autonomous and controlled now controlled forms of motivation would be 
either no motivation you do it because you you say to yourself oh, I must I have to I need to and then um, more intrinsic forms of motivation would be things like I want to um, it's, it's who I am I enjoy this okay so we want to move clients along the continuum from I have to to I want to now if we're giving the client too much praise and we're saying oh you're great you're great what that can do which seems really counterintuitive but it is actually a form of control because what then happens is a client um might be trying to impress you and so when it comes to the check-in they don't want to let you down which in a way is almost a good thing but it's not because then that motivation becomes oh I have to so I don't let down my coach or oh, I need to because I told my coach that I would which is a lesser quality of motivation than I want to so we have to be really really careful that our communication and our feedback isn't undermining a person's motivation yeah really important understanding the role of motivation and how we can shape that and evoke that from within our clients through the way that we communicate with them now I feel like in this podcast hopefully there have been a few light bulb moments for people and maybe some oh shit I've got some things that I could (laughs) potentially focus on here you know there are some strategies for me or at least areas that I now am aware that I could do with some development in so if there are coaches out there who are looking to develop their communication skills understand their role a little bit better seek to create a more conducive coaching dynamic what have you got coming up that may potentially help with that Oh, Shannon, that was an amazing segue. Thank you. Um, (laughs) You've done that before. Okay, so um, I have launched um, an academy. It's called the Fitness Psych Academy, and it's exactly what you just mentioned. So it's a group, a cohort-based coaching program that's 16 weeks long. And the idea is, is that you're going to learn all of this kind of stuff to help you develop as a coach so that you can support your clients through their psychological barriers. So just to give you a brief overview, there are three phases that I believe are important in the development. So phase one is developing you. So this is where we go into depth, exploring kind of your goals as a coach, what your beliefs are, how this is impacting upon your relationship with your clients, really exploring the you and developing the self-awareness because that is the foundation for everything else. The next phase is about developing your program. Just like you mentioned at the start of the podcast, kind of viewing clients as almost like plants and we're the gardener. We need to create the correct conditions. But but how would we know what the conditions are, right? On PT courses or nutrition courses, there isn't any information about the perfect conditions that are conducive to change. So that second session is all about, um, sorry, the second phase is all about developing your coaching program to make it more psychologically informed, which basically means it's more conducive to change. And then the final component, which is phase three, is all about developing your skills. So your skills in helping clients overcome their psychological barriers. So going in depth on communication. How do we actually listen? How do we know what somebody is really saying? How do we hold space, Um, you know, through the use of role plays and and all these kind of things. So hopefully it's going to be, you know, a really intense but thorough training process that, I know, I know, I know that, you know, I'm passionate about this, this kind of stuff, helping coaches with this, because I really do feel like the education that coaches get doesn't support the real world. And I think that some coaches don't know where to turn to coaches that really want to do a good job. It's hard for them to know where to turn to, to have this information. And I know that you're doing great stuff as well to support with this. 
Yeah, I'm really excited to see how the launch goes and learn more about the steps involved because I think there's always work to be done when it comes to developing self-awareness skills and refining our practice as we gain awareness of the issues that we really want to solve. And I think that your academy really does set out to do exactly that. So I will put a link to all of the details in the show notes below, as well as some links for people to find you, um, I know you've got your Instagram that you're pretty active on and your website as well. So if anyone is listening and wants to learn more, all of that information will be in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. I think it is well needed in the industry (laughs) and hopefully, you know, I'm pretty confident that this is the the direction that people are, are going in now. So I'm sure there'll be a lot more to come. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, Shannon. That's awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Consilience podcast. If you found this episode helpful and you know someone who also would benefit, then please do share this episode with them. And if you're looking for more support, check out my coaching, mentoring and educational offerings by looking at my website, which is linked in the show notes. Until next time.